0: Welcome to Thrive, a series that explores how founders, leaders, and changemakers innovate, grow, and navigate in an age of constant disruption.
1: Hi, Hello.
2: I'm Lynn Sintipietro. I'm the director here of Babson College in San Francisco, and I'm so happy you're here uh, for our Thrive series. This is our June event. We do these monthly. Uh, tonight, we have two special guests, two social innovators who are... Um, who who are gonna have a conversation tonight about healthcare, which I think is incredibly timely. Um, uh, We have Dr. Beckett
0: and Darren Dodson, and uh, the conversation is facilitated by Randall Usury. Uh, Randall is um, the CEO of of, uh, Free Range, which is our partner
2: in this series, and Randall's also an alum as well as a faculty member here. So, thank you all for joining us. Thrilled to have you. Thank
3: you. Thanks.
2: Thanks for coming. Uh, I typically don't use notes. But since you're here, Darren, I'm going to use notes. (laughs) Um, I thought I'd start this out uh, by kind of bringing up a book uh, a little bit. Uh, This happens to be a children's book. It's called A is for Activist. Um, It's by Inesanto Nagara, But um, every time I pick it up and read it to my wonderful little child, I think of Darren. Um, And I'm going to start with A. Um, A is for activist, advocate, abolitionist, ally, actively answering a call to action. I'd like to add a little piece for you. And acting as a force of good in business. Darren, thanks for being here. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, you can. <laughs> he deserves it. Yeah. Um, Thank you. And then for uh, Dr. Beckett, I thought I would uh, start with I. I is for inspiration. Inventing a new way of doing things. Leveraging insights from abroad and ignoring any negative hurdles that may stand in the way of an invitation one day. So, um, and I think uh, the reason why I bring that up is when I think of these um, guys, I really think about um, how I can become a better activist, um, how I can dream bigger, and, um, and, and do some of the stuff that they're doing. Um, so I, I thought we'd just begin. Darren, like, tell us a little bit about you. Give us your personal journey.
3: Sure. I, um, I grew up in Washington, DC, uh, a city that I'm really passionate about. And one of the things about Washington, D.C., is it's one of the most unequal cities in the country uh, by the Gini coefficient. So I grew up uh, you know, understanding what that meant in a variety of different ways. Uh, I grew up knowing all four of my grandparents, um, which was a powerful experience to be connected to another generation and through my grandmother to another century uh, who lived through the Great Depression. Um, so the, the issues of equity and, and justice in many ways were present in the city of Washington. I spent a lot of time um, starting little businesses like bagel businesses uh, in my high school, which inspired me about the power of entrepreneurship, and then spent a lot of time also working on issues of social justice, working with some local programming, got, programs, got trained as a person that focused on religious and racial tolerance. And um, chose to go to Duke University after, uh, after finishing high school because of some of the challenges on campus around racial justice. I think an African American student was arrested for riding his own bike um, around the time I was writing my application. And, you know, an incredible place to explore academic. Um, and uh, and and cultural kind of understanding the South, uh, and and kind of unlock the imagination from an academic standpoint, but also a place to exercise activism in the campus. And we had uh, lots of gatherings between all-white fraternities and African-American fraternities, sororities, and uh, talking about some of the challenges that we were facing uh, as collectively and working together to have really, really difficult and hard conversations. So the themes of social justice and entrepreneurship have run through my life uh, in many different ways. I've spent some time in the subprime lending uh, crisis trying to help low-income folks uh, protect themselves from predatory loans and regulating banks, uh, and then then also uh, eventually going to business school, working with, uh, Hurricane Katrina. After, after, after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, and then ultimately to a career in impact investing, where I am now in community economic development. As how so I met this wonderful, wonderful person, Dr. Beckett. And,
2: and you sit on a few boards, what, yeah.
3: <laughs> I also have the uh, the privilege of serving on the Ben and Jerry's board of directors. Uh, also very, very focused on social justice and that's been an incredible experience and and lots of fun as well
2: great all right dino, tell us a little bit about you <clears throat>
1: sure uh so dino beckett i grew up in, in williamson west virginia where uh, where i'm at now and um you know growing up in a small town with uh you know core um community values uh where faith and family were big things that that uh you know kept Uh, everyone together. You know, when I grew up, my uh, parents always talked about how, what a wonderful place this town was, uh, Williamson, and how it had gone through this whole economic uh, up and down. And um, uh, for me, growing up there and having, you know, aunts, uncles, cousins around, that that, uh, really formed a lot of um, what I thought about the community that I lived in. Um, I also had a a business that I started in, in my uh, early entrepreneurial days, as a I sold pencils at my school, which was uh, the the first venture that I'd gone into, and it, it was uh, that's why I was talking earlier about how we had uh, 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 my aunt had had this whole collection of pencils that were set in her attic. She didn't know what to do with it, so I started selling them at the school uh, to make some extra money, and and uh, which which was great. But then I was shut down by the principal after he put in his uh, pencil machine, so. Uh, so then I learned how the regulatory component kicked in. <laughs> and then I learned how to go black market with my pencil. So, but, um, so early on I wanted to be a part of you know, uh, the entrepreneurial um, uh, culture and, and didn't realize that that was uh, how you know, I was uh, uh, pursuing you know, things in life. <clears throat> I went to uh, Western University um, and, and uh, after graduating I ended up going to South America to study. Uh, to do an internship um, in Chile to look at how physicians worked in a very rural community and how that experience really inspired me to become a physician because of this basic understanding of how they did not have, you know, diagnostic tools or imaging, they were using their hands, their ears, their eyes, and, and just laying hands on people. And that had a profound impact on me to what I wanted to, to do and then I wanted to take that back to my community. so. Um, after uh, un- I returned from South America, I ended up working as a chemist, a little diversion there, which was um, not so exciting for me but uh, and I ended up following my you know true love of uh, wanting to become a physician. so as um, I went through, I always had this this feeling that I would be back in in uh, uh, Williamson and, and uh, I mean just you know I, I have the opportunity of taking care of some of the greatest people um, in the world and and uh, I feel very strongly about how that uh, growing up in Williamson impacted my life and and it was a way for me to give back to the community. But for me, um, looking at how now we can take medicine and health and tie that to economic development has been a really big push of what I've been doing um, in the uh, you know probably the last uh, seven years. I did have the opportunity of meeting Darren and and, and got to experience some of the amazing stuff that was going on in uh, New Orleans post-Katrina and that was a, a very inspirational time for me to see how that was happening and how that could be um, something to bring back to my community as well so having that experience and uh, um, just really uh, admiring somebody and, and how so much hard work and, and uh, uh, innovation goes into a place and, and creates change I really want to kinda um, you know bring that like I said back to Williamson
2: yeah and, and before we Finish with the personal journey. Maybe yeah. speak a little bit about New Orleans and, and just what what went down there.
3: Sure. Um, I think when we think about kind of big problems, one of the things that I don't like to separate from a philosophical standpoint is economics from justice. Like I think a lot of people like to have conversations about justice, but then they don't talk about economics. And a lot of people like to have conversations about economics but don't talk about justice. And I think New Orleans is a great example of a nationwide discussion that was forced that where, where, where lots of people were talking about each of those. But being at a school, uh, in business school at the time, and having a conversation with a lot of my classmates, we'd often approach the problems from different angles based on our life experiences. So part of what I felt was um, sort of necessary at the time was for people that were very far away having a discussion in the bubble of Silicon Valley around something that was happening in a community that was a a thousand more more miles or, or more miles away was that we should be informed by real people that live there. Um, so part of what we did is we put together a team um, and went to New Orleans in the spirit of, of, of service. And we tried to help out initially by helping a family rebuild their house, which was actually incredibly challenging for MBA students to do, um, who had very, no, almost no experience in putting together a house. Um, and I remember hitting a gas pipe in the house, and it almost—you know—thank God nothing happened. But you could tell how bad of an idea it was um, by 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 you know having an experience. And I remember spending all this time and energy, um, but ultimately coming back saying, "Well, is there another way that we could help?" And um, and this was post Katrina, right? This is yeah, post Katrina. Yeah. Uh, so the following year we created a program that would grow for the next nine years which was MBA students and corporate volunteers um, Going to New Orleans and learning from the community about their innovation and strategies and the, uh, the Indigenous genius of uh, the same culture that created jazz in, in its current iteration of creating solutions to grow the city out from beyond uh, you know, Katrina and the challenges that were faced. So whether it was coastal resor- restoration or whether it was looking at ways to create um, gumbo to sell all around the country or whether it was thinking about um, educating G- Google employees about how their AdWords tools would fit to um, the culture of um, uh, of innovation in local communities and, sort of the the service economy within New Orleans and tourism, there was lots of different things to explore and learn from. So the big insight there was that business school students that were around the country that didn't know much about running companies, because they're going to business school to be risk averse, would have the chance to sit with entrepreneurs, feel what it feels like in their stomach to take a risk in the context of one of the hardest problems in the country maybe listen, maybe help out by giving some strategic advice, but learn and solve this critical problem that they were uh, facing. And the students would work really hard and then often make connections that would help the entrepreneurs to grow. So that was the concept that, that culminated in 100,000 hours of time from volunteers uh, that, that actually paid to be a part of the learning process of the community there and, in New Orleans and help recreate the infrastructure for entrepreneurship and innovation. And
2: it still continues today.
3: And it still yeah. continues today. We just had about 18,000 people plugged in in New Orleans this year, celebrating across 90 different stages of entrepreneurship and innovation, um, the, the cultural context. And one of the things that is most um, meaningful to me about that experience is is yes it's great to see great lots of people out for a week in new orleans and a street shut down but what now is happening is that as kids are looking at opportunities of what they want to be entrepreneurship is part of the uh, the vernacular and one of my my favorite event is called the big idea and basically there're 30 entrepreneurs that are presenting their own idea and little kids are going up and down and listening to the pitches and they all have little chips that are worth about $100 each and they ultimately decide which entrepreneur to invest in. So you have third graders making angel investment decisions and trying to think about what it's like not only to be an entrepreneur but to be an investor and evaluate pitches so it becomes a part of the culture. And all this is happening within the, the culture of You know, instruments are playing in the background, You've got the crawfish, you know, kind of going, and people are eating and having fun. But it's a culturally uh, a cultural fit in the way that we're talking about entrepreneurship and innovation. Yeah,
2: and what's really interesting about that is Dino was kind of doing the same thing in West Virginia, right? That's and right. It's a, it's a good segue into West Virginia. I thought I'd share some stats, uh, just kind of compare West Virginia as a whole. Uh, to San Francisco, 1.8 million people. There's 870,000 people in San Francisco proper here. Uh, Per square mile population, 77.4 people. Um, Here, it's 17,000. Per capita income, $24,000 a year in West Virginia. It's a little over 52K here. Um, Bachelor's degree or higher, 20%, or a little less than 20% in West Virginia. Uh, A little over 52% here. You want to share some stats from a health perspective? Sure.
1: So When you look at West Virginia, we're usually uh, one, two, or three in, in many categories, uh, such as hypertension, obesity, diabetes, <clears throat> and then when you drill down into Mingo County, we're usually either number one, two, or three uh, in those same categories, so you have um, uh, a lot of health disparities that are impacting um, what's happening within a community as well. So. You look at that. You look at we have over forty percent of children that under the age of four that live in poverty. You have um, our diabetes rate right now where we're at, uh, I think eleven percent uh, in Mingo County. The state is probably at fourteen percent. So, um, what happens when you have these chronic disease states, and and how that impacts not only health but also it it impacts an economy as well because you're you know having to utilize a lot of your your earnings to go towards uh, health care, but the state spend on health care is also very big uh, to where, you know, you're taking resources that could be used for other things. And, you know, we know that that uh, entrepreneurism and poverty are inversely related, so if we can address the issues of health and uh, uh, entrepreneurship, that we can work a lot in, in a lot of ways to uh, impact uh, poverty as well. So
2: Could you define health for us? Yeah.
1: Yeah, health for me is... Um, um, You know, being a doctor, we have a very um, specific uh, belief of health, but, you know, my belief of health is that it it actually looks at, uh, you know, what's somebody's uh, living conditions. Do they have livable wages? Do they have access to fresh food? Do they have, you know, obviously the traditional uh, thought process of health, but all these other factors that are playing a big role in in what's going on in that person's um, life
2: yeah, mix of economics and justice, right? right. Yeah. Um, maybe just uh, give the audience a little bit uh, about about Winston Health Initiative, how it began, and uh, where it is today.
1: Yeah, so, Williamson Health and Wellness is um, the nonprofit that uh, that I'm the CEO of. And, and we started as um, it actually started in my office. I, I have my own practice as a pr- private physician, but uh, we started on Good Friday in 2011. Uh, we started noticing that there are lots of um, people had lost jobs, didn't have insurance, unemployed, various reasons in between jobs. So they didn't have access or the ability to pay for health care. So we started this, this clinic, a free clinic, so to speak, in my office, and that was a Good Friday of 2011. And We started doing a lot of things, tying in um, um, other services that could benefit uh, people as well. And um, I happened to meet a, a, a lady by the name of Monica Neese, who was uh, um, a grant writer, and she's like, you really need to pursue looking at a fairly qualified health center. And I had no idea what that meant, but it's a, a clinic that uh, basically receives um, uh, funding from the government, but you also generate revenue as well. So I had to learn this whole process, and, and fortunately she was able to, uh, to uh, help with a lot of the uh, uh, learning uh, curve uh, with what we were doing. And we had put together a board and, and created this uh, outstanding community, uh, bringing the, all the stakeholders together to look at what, what possibly we could do. And shortly after that's when I, I met Darren. But, um, so Williamson Health and Wellness started as an idea of, of creating access to healthcare, but then it grew into this whole um, project where we're, you know, not only is healthcare at the forefront in, in the way that we look at health, but also looking at how we can economically uh, uh, become an economic driver within, uh, within the community as well.
2: Yeah, and I, I've been fortunate to spend some time with you there and, um, you know, we think innovation is happening here every day. And, and when you get there, you really see innovation on the ground. Happening and, and you know congratulations you were named Rural Healthcare Doctor of the Year this year, um, which is a fairly impressive <laughs> um, statement by any um, organization, particularly our our <laughs> um, um So yeah, congratulations on that. Um, from a innovation perspective, Darren, what are you seeing on the ground in West Virginia?
3: Well, I th- I think the part of uh, the way that we've engaged with. West Virginia over the years, and we have some of our team members in the audiences through uh, Impact Experience. And one of the core beliefs of Impact Experience is that we believe in the wisdom of people that live in communities and their ability to solve problems that if they solve there, are relevant to communities around the world. And when we showed up with, in Williamson, uh, you know, it was, it was part of the reason why we believe that that is true. I mean, I think that was an experience and a belief, but we saw it proved out in, in, in Williamson. And uh, the ability to create in particular, and, and Dr. Becky could share more about it, but a drop in A1C, hemoglobin in A1C, that is on parallel with a, a billion dollar blockbuster drug through innovation and process around uh, highly highly uh, trained healthcare workers or community health workers was something really powerful. But I think the insights and the training, not only from a medical standpoint but also from a cultural relevance standpoint, are what kind of blow people away. And I know there are, there are a lot of doctors at very elite you know universities around the country that are struggling to come up with similar models to reduce A1C in rural communities in similar ways. And what surprises me the most is how rarely they show up in communities that have been able to achieve this to understand how they're achieving this, which I think is a, a, a kind of a blind spot for uh, leading universities and their paradigms of creating change. That actually, so, so the, the surprising thing to me isn't that they uh, came up with their own solutions, but it's that the world's still asleep that um, rural communities with these great challenges have uh, asleep to the fact that they've come up with their incredible solutions that are highly relevant and scalable, but are somewhat uh, you know underappreciated.
2: Yeah, it comes back to that comment a little earlier where you think, um, or you don't have very much context, so you think you can provide them context for how to be innovative when really innovation is happening. Um, what's really fascinating about the FQ, or Federally Qualified Health Centers, is it was actually founded in South Africa in the 60s, mm-hmm. right, and then we adopted it here in the States, and it's, it's slowly rolled out, but it's becoming more and more important to rural healthcare communities, um, for sure. Uh, so from a um, talent perspective, Darren, you know, maybe talk a little bit about impact experience and, and the model. And, and how you actually leverage talent to um, solve some of these problems.
3: Sure, uh, so, so taking that belief that uh, things spring, uh, solutions spring from the communities themselves, part of what is missing is uh, particularly in the, in the conversation between uh, the bubble here in Silicon Valley and, and rural communities of which uh, there, I think, got increasingly polarized during the last election, and the the veil between what's actually happening there and what people think is happening there actually grew and expanded. So, part of uh, what you hear in, in in places like this, on Stanford's campus, or uh, in, in in campuses of Google or Facebook or other places, is a belief that. Um, uh, beliefs about uh, West Virginia, but also a belief about the future of technology and the idea that there's gonna be these incredible disruptions of workforce. But a lot of these disruptions are not informed by the communities themselves and where they're at. So the idea is to get to know each other's uh, humanity first and bring together people to test their ideas against reality, um, which I think is highly relevant to companies, but put them in situations where they're actually trying to solve problems alongside people that are doing it within the context of, uh, of of Williamson. So we brought 30 people from around the country and around the world innovators and entrepreneurs to Williamson to work together alongside the community to to learn and then to roll up their sleeves and to begin to work and make commitments towards moving some of these challenges along and that's essentially the, the model but I, I can't stress enough a lot a lot of times within investment strategies people invest from far away and expect good things to happen without building trust first so you know we've mentioned that we've uh, known each other for over five years now and there's a process of building trust that we think is really important and one of the priorities of the gatherings when we get together we also move into design thinking and then uh, commitments and solutions and things of that sort. But I think that's the most missed point in community development. When we were, when we were spending time in New Orleans before an NBA team, after we did it for three years and we kind of messed it up for two years, we decided to make sure we built context and we asked people to humbly walk <coughs> into communities and, and imagine in their minds that communities could add value. Uh, before they started telling people what to do. And uh, the, the results drastically changed in terms of people's overall experience and actually the, uh, the acceleration of different ventures uh, became possible. But the natural tendency is to walk in and start telling people what to do and lo and behold, uh, some of the best answers to our biggest challenges are lying dormant in communities like Williamson without coming humbly to the communities
2: yeah so Dino on that end um, we've gotten to spend quite a bit of time together um, and, and and I think you have an incredible vision or you've packed an incredible um, um, vision for Williamson what, what is that vision like what do you, where do you see Williamson 2.0
1: well, you know, the biggest thing is we've been a, a coal-based economy for uh, for many years, and um, and that's a way of, you know, people providing for their families. That's the way they, they, they fed their families. They provided education for them. So when you have people that have uh, a college degree, I mean, a, a high school degree or maybe don't have a high school degree, they can go into a coal mine and make eighty to $120,000 a year. Um, and then, you know, once you start losing those jobs, that's a very big impact. So we have to look at how to diversify the economy and, and look at other ways of, of, you know, it's not like there's going to be these factories dropping into Williamson to replace what's been lost. So having uh, um, the ability to look at what are the assets that we have, which are many, and then how can we leverage those and accelerate, you know, ideas uh, through with people in the community as well as bringing in outside people as well. But, you know, there are things that we look at as far as tourism, um, just the, the amount of talent that's there from a, a workforce also, uh, the, the cultural, the arts, all these things that are, are you know, just greatly overlooked that could be uh, brought into the forefront in, in, in helping us change, um, change the economy uh, to diversify it more. Coal will always have some form in, in West Virginia, particularly in, in Mingo County, but it's, it's taken a much smaller role, so it allows us to look at ways that we can start filling that void with other opportunities, and that's kind of where we're going with that.
2: Yeah, and, and if you think about it from, you know, we're, just to stick with some of the themes, like we've talked about innovation, bringing best practice and, and leveraging the best practice that's already happening on the ground. We're talking about access to talent or mm-hmm. leveraging the talent that already exists on the ground. Um, the kind of other key component is capital, right? Yeah. And, and, and not just any type of capital long term capital that's going to really see this community through um, Darren you've been investing in companies for a very long time um, you're very familiar on the long term capital plays um, that are necessary to um, think about um, driving communities in a new way um, what from a capital perspective do you think is needed in West Virginia and what are the opportunities from a capital perspective.
3: Or the so, no, I think it's, yeah. a, it's a great question. Um, so, so so part of my background is investing in the leading private equity funds in the world in a sector called impact investing. And uh, some of the leading private equity funds in the world are just impact investments, period, which I also find fascinating because a lot of people will think that that's because it's impact investing and they don't generate returns. So what I would say is that the in terms of growth and impact investing, there's been explosive growth in the field. There are 95 funds that were created in the last four years. Um, the, this is just within impact private equity and the amount of capital has moved from about two billion to 13.4 billion. Over the last several years, as well, so there's a huge upward trend, and what what I see is that capital doesn't get to communities like Williamson to fund the innovation, and creates a big gap. So part of what our challenges at uh, Impact Experience and two of my colleagues, Simmer and Nelson, are in the audience speaking of talent, Woo! <laughs> and Jenna is overseas now from our team as well. But it's a it's an incredible opportunity to, do, to, to kind of fill this gap. So one is impact investors as much as I, I love them and I'm a part of that community. After seven years of investing in 16 funds uh, on, on five different continents, part of what I saw was that they're, they're very distant from the problems that they're trying to solve. And there's an incredible opportunity to learn about the problems that they're trying to solve by visiting communities like Williamson and working together with them to, to roll up their sleeves and, and, and work on the problems together. And then thoughtfully think about relationships and other aspects of funding actual ventures in communities over time and leverage the right type of capital to, to move things forward and fund innovation. So,
2: and to make sure that capital stays in those communities. And
3: well, that, supports, that's, that's a, gr- that's a great point, yeah. and we can talk about the history of extraction and how that, uh, the, the concept of capital staying in communities is a reverse of that idea. So I think that's a really important piece of it. I don't know, I think the models of impact investing Um, that have been developed so far, and there's some great groups that are working super hard on non-extractive impact investing. But I think we have a a long way to go in figuring that out. Uh, But it's 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 a really good point. But I do think that there is a really important obligation for this field and opportunity for the field to really get to the source of the root causes of problems by understanding intimately how to build solutions together and
2: and monetize those solutions right? and, and monetize it those solutions and, yeah.
3: it, it, it sounds it sounds crazy that um, I mean some of it I'm just thinking of the value of some of the solutions that are being created especially as our country goes into huge challenges about how to get together as a country and how to uh, speak to each other right. as a country, um, and Williamson's modeling solutions with a, at a micro level within their community that could be replicable in lots of other places. Um, but then again, you know, as they're moving beyond uh, 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 the challenges of extractive uh, histories um, and the different narratives that they're working on, there are lots of larger cities that are working on similar problems. Yeah. So getting there to really understand is part of the, uh, part of the challenge.
2: And, and if you just take a drive with Dino for a day around <laughs> Mingo County, um, you'll be like, oh, there's an opportunity, I'm gonna pick that one off. Oh, there's an opportunity and it's worth moving there and investing in the community, um, particularly if you're looking for somewhere to um, be for a very long time. Um, on that end, I mean, where are you seeing the investments um, and where capital is needed? Well, I mean,
1: you know, the model that we use within our clinic, like the one uh, specific program that we have, where we've taken uh, community health workers and, and used that as uh, on the healthcare front to look at high-risk patients. These are people that utilize a lot of healthcare dollars and uh, um, poorly because they just they've not uh, um, learned their disease state and how to take care of that. So, by utilizing the community health workers, what we've been able to do is is uh, what Darren alluded to. Um, by using education, uh, just the the face-to-face meeting with them and and, and continuity with patients, we've been able to drop hemoglobin A1C, which is a three-month measurement of someone's blood sugar. We've been able to drop that by 2.2%. So if you're a drug company and you create a drug that drops hemoglobin A1C by 0.6%, that's a multi-billion dollar drug. So we've been able to do that just kind of the old-fashioned way with education, boots on the ground, and really looking at ways that uh, are outside the box and Having the the patient as a key component of that that healthcare team, actually the leader of that healthcare team.
3: So you mean you didn't have to uh, give them a bunch of pills and no, <laughs> no. the old-fashioned way? Yeah, is yeah, like cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, much cheaper. And that a particular model R&D? <laughs> is, is
2: currently being looked at replicating in other areas,
1: yes. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, it's a simple model that um, um, has such great impact. Now it is getting some awareness, and it is easily replicable uh, to communities.
2: Throughout the United States yeah. and so the world, we're going to head in the Q and A a little bit. Uh, but uh, just before we end, like, what do you need? Like, I mean, if if you could have anything tomorrow in Williamson, what you know? How can we help as a group?
1: Well, I think you know the biggest thing is the awareness, which we're getting more of that. But how you know, Darren, as eloquently stated, how you have the people in 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 Williamson that have in or Mingo County in West Virginia have these innovative ideas and and problems that they're facing, how they're looking at those, but then bringing in capital and and uh, um, people with expertise to look at that and how to problem solve side by side. One, I think it, it's great to help address a problem, but also accelerates the, the solutions that we can come up with uh, at a much more rapid pace. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So I'm going to open it up uh, to the audience. Any questions? Yeah. Thank you for sharing those stories. Um, it, it's more of a personal question. How do you stay motivated and who inspires you? Like, who do you look up to?
1: Um, I think, you know, one of the biggest inspirations for me was, you know, my parents uh, grew up in the area. And uh, like I said, it is such a. a, a nice community and and some of the greatest people in the world I mean I I can have the worst day and uh, go in and just you know have a patient you know thank me uh, for for just taking care of them or or, you know bringing me some fresh tomatoes that they've made I mean those are things that are inspirational to me from a standpoint that you know we're in this fight trying to do the 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 thing that's good for uh, a great group of people so patients and family uh, and, and just the I mean you know West Virginia is a very um, resilient state. We've had many uh, times been knocked down, but we keep standing back up. So I think that that's part of it too, just being a little stubborn. And, and I love being told no, or I can't do something. That's how I actually got to med school. So, yeah. uh, but it's, it's you know, that, that uh, mountaineer spirit, I guess, of, of uh, being able to, to carry that resilience on. So that,
3: that definitely inspires me. Yeah, I, I think, um, well, I do, as our, our team spends a lot of time uh, kind of checking in and building what I would call rituals and processes, routines, and habits in order to check in and see, you know, did we run this morning or did we meditate or did we find a way to uh, build resilience to the system that we're trying to change? Because what we realized is that one of the most powerful things that we can do as change agents in a system is to create routines and processes among our team that are keeping us awake, You know, as Martin Luther King would say, awake during the revolution. Um, and it's really hard to remember if you're in a culture that thinks that Williamson doesn't have good ideas, that thinks that they're... Uh, people that voted differently because, be, than they did, so they shouldn't talk to them, and in a prevailing uh, sea change of the splitting apart of the fabric of uh, a country and a world, um, and, and to revive the idea that we're better together and we can build unity, um, diversity, and um, build innovation to get us out of the challenges that we're in as a, as a country and a world, then you know you have to kind of think differently. So we were talking about our, within our team earlier today about the power of the news to limit your ability to notice um, awe and beauty. Uh, so we, we spent a little bit of time just uh, you know articulating how we want to uh, you know build our, our team getaways or whether we want to do retreats and things of that that sort. Um, and of course, we do a lot of a lot of incredibly rigorous work, and it's not just all about sitting around and thinking about and pontificating and looking navel gazing and stuff like that. But if you aren't consciously, look, the way I see it is that there's a river of 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 things that are flowing at all times that are keeping communities like Williamson and other communities around the country, rural communities, and. Cities and injustices in place, so we don't create a little eddy in the river to be able to think about the strategy to reverse um, or to um, you know we had a wonderful jujitsu leader up here in one of the other Thrive series, uh, Sanu, um, who's also a a great friend, runs a company called Six Up, Um, but we brought you know he's also a judo champion and part of what the reason why it's so refreshing to convene with people like that is because they're thinking about how to reverse the energy that's coming towards them to create a new system and that's part of what I think is necessary so I think it's a really good question we do actively think about that in the self-care and the health and uh, like I said it's it's part of the work and if it's not part of the work then then people end up burning out really quickly and not able to revive and you know you know good dancing dancing every once in a while is really important. <laughs> and, and I and think and our on team on the is ground, on the
2: ground, there's a particular narrative that has been taking place over years that isn't actually defined by the community as well, and it's oftentimes mm-hmm. defined by the national narrative of what is West Virginia like. Um, or you know how we think it may be yet we've never been there before and so there's this moment of consciousness that's happening particularly in Williamson right now and it's, it's being led by um, Williamson Health and, 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 and Wellness um, to kind of reframe the narrative to really rethink like who we are gonna be in the future kind of 2.0 um, and, and, and let that be the guiding light versus you know, all right, this is what Washington DC is saying about us right now, you know, we're second to last in everything, and um, there's no opportunity when, you know, after a while you just get beat down, right? You're a kid, you're growing up there, like, you know, that's how you perceive yourself. So there's, a, there's this flipping of narrative that's happening, and, um, and part of it is it's all about just boots on the ground. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's not gonna happen anyway. It's gonna be getting to know your neighbor, right? It's gonna be forming that trust.
3: Yeah, and I think, I think in the, in the Jiu Jitsu kind of, or Judo, reversing of the energy that's coming towards Williamson, I think the narrative is super powerful. I would, I would also say that we'd never do an impact experience convening without musicians and storytellers. Right. Um, and because the stories rest in the cultural um, assets of communities. Uh, that are undervalued, way undervalued, in relative to their ability to create change. There's some great people at the Culture Bank here, here in town. They're coming up with different strategies to monetize community cultural assets. That is really, really neat stuff. But, but I remember when I moved down to New Orleans. Um, it, it took two years for me to move down there fully, and where I, I lived there for three years after I graduated from business school, and during the the two years right after the storm almost everyone i knew that moved back burned out and right around the two-year mark when i moved down the music had come back and the ability to work uh you know 19 hours a day and then go out and listen to music that would revive your soul you know and revive your spirits and like get back out and get to work for another 19 hours the next day was, was what really shifted, in my opinion, when the musicians came back, that shifted the entire culture and unlocked you know, people's ability to, to be refreshed uh, and then to go back to work. And that's one of the things that I, I love about West Virginia is hearing, you know, the, uh, we have a friend, Tim, who's an ethnomusicologist who you know, brings out the story of the banjos and how they got to West Virginia, some of their African roots connecting across cultures and creating this meme where people from very different backgrounds all of a sudden are, are, are suddenly closer in meeting the challenges that's put before them and, and sort of a, 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 the, the broadest sense of what that means at a national or international level because they've been brought together through music, which right. is one of the you know, great great conveners of people.
1: Hi, um, my name is Jocelyn Ryder. I'm a consultant, uh, an equality consultant, and I'm especially interested in um, the Darren, the how you bring restorative justice and entrepreneurship together, Mm -hmm. as you talked about. um, You talked about some of that, and because one of the things I think about with entrepreneurship is learning how to win. And when I think about that in relation to restorative justice, I think of learning how to cooperate. So can you tell me something about how those things mesh for you and and what you've seen?
3: That's a really really interesting um, kind of thought process. So what I will say, I'll I'll share just a story of, uh, because to me, justice is about winning too, right? And it's just defined as um, the, the 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 structural barriers that exist, and what winning means is beating those structural barriers that are inside of a system. So I talked about the river that was flowing towards um, people of injustice, and that river is flowing at kids that are in the. Uh, education system, we see that African American kids are expelled at four times the rate of white kids uh, for the same infraction. In the education system, we can look at healthcare disparities uh, and see, you know, similar outcomes that there's less treatments regardless of uh, class across race within healthcare. You can dig into those statistics, but but basically, I think one of the core concepts of winning an entrepreneurship is about talent and acquiring the best talent in the world. And this is something that Silicon Valley claims to be fierce about. But if we really wanted to find the best talent in the world, what we would do is give every, is make sure that every third grader in the country was being educated um, so that we could find the untapped genius in communities around the entire country and in communities throughout the world um, so that we could end up with the best workforce that would be the, the, the most competitive, create the best companies, solve the hardest problems in the world. Um, so to me, the, the system of injustice is preventing winning across the entire uh, strategies of entrepreneurial companies. And again, it's one of those things that's amazing to me that people miss as they call themselves being hungry for talent and they look at the less than 1% uh, minority makeup and way underweighted gender makeup of their companies and pretend like that is finding the best talent in the world like there's this statistically adjust you know you have incredibly data driven people that when it gets to this area suddenly forget statistical analyses and how to find uh, how to find things that happen beyond chance i can tell you it's not by chance that that 1% of people are minorities within many of the tech companies that are within a couple blocks of here. Um, it's by design, right? And, and unless we ask tough questions about that design and don't pretend like it just happened, um, then we'll never unlock the full potential of the companies that we're trying to build. Thank you. Sure.
0: Yeah. Um, hi. So you guys have talked about the need to uh, provide good education and healthcare to people, especially young people, to um, provide opportunities for graduate students and entrepreneurs to get out into Appalachia, see what it's like down there. Um, What about the, the talent pool that is kids who grew up in coal country and then moved away how are you incentivizing them to return? Um, since it's not always the most glamorous, like when I, I I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina, mm-hmm. which is like a city, we don't have half the apps on my phone working out there. So, you know, I think about Mingo County and when I was there a decade ago, I didn't have cell phone service. So what what's the draw, what's the appeal other than that inherent desire to give back to your community because you love it.
1: Um, well, you know, I think one thing is, is that, that, you know, Darren has been uh, very uh, successful in having as part of the strategy is, is connecting the diaspora of West Virginia back to, um, you know, it, it, and, and there's this collective spirit of, of people that have uh, lived in, in West Virginia and Appalachia that uh, even though they may be, you know, far away, uh, they still have this connection to that, and how that they can be a part of this, um, um, you know, West Virginia Williamson uh, 2.0, as as we've called it. Um, I think that that's really important, because um, I mean there are people that that when they look, you know, at at the, the where they're living now, maybe the lifestyle is not what they were brought up in, and, and culturally they're not, you know it's not the same as what they add. So if there is an opportunity to go back to that, and and then we have infrastructure in place so you can get a sales signal, um, then that's gonna help create the opportunity for people to come back. But that's part of of the strategy that we have to do is is build out that infrastructure. Those are things that we're looking at as well. But being able to show people opportunities because, you know, that's my thought. Is I would love to grow our entrepreneurs. You know, especially you know at, at a younger age, but but also attract because you know the the, the number one export uh, for West Virginia is not coal; it's the talent of the people that are there. So uh, you know, that's why you have a, a population that just decreased, but West Virginians that have gone out into the world have made a huge impact. Uh, there's one guy that's uh, been around California for a while that's, that's created a couple of NBA championships by the name of Jerry West. So I mean, you can see that we, we do have people that have been able to, to, to come out of that and, and there is that resilience, that, that uh, just inherent nature to, uh, to, to win to be successful. So if they could translate that opportunity back uh, home and have those opportunities, I think that that's a way to attract them back as well.
3: And, w- and your question was really, uh, I think, awesome to me because it, it presents what you told was a story, right? You told the story of the person not wanting to go back because of the lost opportunities. But there's another story. And that story is about um, what, what worked in New Orleans and what's working in Williamson now and what worked here as the country moved to the west, which is the frontier. And when this place was great, it was people, it was the wild west, right? I mean, it was robber barons that were creating this place that we're in right now, that were um, kind of exploring a new frontier and trying to create things that would never have been created before. And there's some, at least some underlying thinking that Silicon Valley is a mature ecosystem now Um, companies are are getting bid up or some of them are overvalued and because we've lost that resilience um, of the frontier culture so there's another narrative about uh, the hardest challenges in the world that um, I feel a lot of uh, you know the the current generation I can see it in our demographics as Ben and Jerry's as a board member uh, in terms of millennial demographics people oriented towards purpose Solving the hardest challenges in the world is what we ask Google, Cisco, Salesforce, other companies that have sort of stepped up to the occasion, because their programmers are working on tasks to improve the efficiency slightly of different companies, Um, and in a a non-proximal way. So there's also the other story to me is, what does it mean to go back to home and transform the place that you came to so that opportunity, you know, and 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 to bring your colleagues along an experience of understanding uh, the, the the culture at the local bar or the understanding what it's like to go to, uh, to church or synagogue or a temple on Sunday and, or to um, go to a Friday night football game and and feel it or hear a banjo player kind of describe the history of music like these are experiences that I think this area of the country is thirsting for but they can't find in the surreal bubble that they're looking for. So whenever we bring people to Williamson, they leave saying this was the greatest experience of my life and I didn't even know that it was going to be because I feel connected to a community and I see the way people you know, have dinner together and families connect and, and other things. So I think that that's at the heart of what we do as, uh, you know, and the heart, heart of what Free Range does and it's you know, incredible ability to tell stories um, and, and I know there, there, there are books that will, that will come out soon that are a lot about that particular narrative changing and how we can make better decisions. So I just think it's, uh, uh, it's the stories that we tell ourselves ultimately that enable these ideas to work or not.
2: Yeah, there's a, it, it, if you were to actually speak with boomerangs there, you know, individuals that have come back and they're spending time on the ground, uh, a A lot of the conversation typically is around I could spend forty to fifty hours a week working for a company that doesn't have the values of Williamson community or I can spend forty to fifty hours a week solving problems of a place that has values I believe in and and, and so there's a particular like there's a particular like longing to be part of a community right and and, and be part of a value system that's going to in essence, not necessarily change the world. I mean, you're not going to particularly, um, you may not create the next Google, you may not be part of creating the next Google, um, but you can have a lot of impact in a very short period of time and set yourself up for life <laughs> in many respects, right? And, and and really be your own boss. Like There's a lot of autonomy and there's a lot of independence that comes with going to a place like Williamson.
3: Yeah, and I don't, I, don't, I don't know that I can see that it wouldn't create the next Google. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I, I, but I agree, I, th- I think that you're right on in the boomerang thesis. Um, I think it's, I'm, I'm never surprised when people that are building, and part of what we do is we bring some of the fastest growing companies in the world to Williamson uh, that are from the portfolios of companies that we invest in and we invite them to come and they're, they leave with different ideas than they had before and they build smarter and better. Now how does Williamson benefit from that is a really important question to ask and that's about keeping capital you know, within the community, creating kind of net, net income for the community and that's still a, pr- a problem that we're working on and solving. But I, I do think that there are uh, people you know, that are there that will come up with great solutions Because one of the great solutions we're looking for right now is how, in 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 a world that AI is coming to, how rural communities continue to survive. Now what's that worth to rural communities around the world? It's worth a lot of money. You solve diabetes and you come up with a patternable process to reduce A1C in parallel without using drugs. Like, that's a, you know, those are, those are very, very big ideas. Um, and part of the reasons why those kids in New Orleans are listening to the entrepreneur's pitch and walking up and down the street and then, you know, betting on the ones they believe in is because they're developing a, a way of thinking that could build, a, you know, a, a significant, uh, decisive company for the future of their community. Yeah.
2: about uh, a lot of the stuff that you guys are talking about is, uh, you know, so, um, so broad and long-term, and I'm just wondering about what sorts of data points and metrics you guys use to even understand, you know, how to orient yourself in terms of the decisions that are being made, uh, like, you know, the things that you're listening to, uh, to assess whether a strategy is on the right track and whether there are uh, things that you're missing and and things that need to be changed um, in the course of such a an ambitious and, and far-reaching program. How do you measure it? What do you measure? How do you make decisions midway through?
1: Well, you know, from the health standpoint, we, we do have data points that, that are, are, you know, spelling, giving us the, the information that we need. And that's kind of what's, what's helped us um, have successes that we have. We've had investment in, in many of our programs because of uh, the data that we've been able to collect and show that the model that we have it has been effective. We, there are other things that we've done that have not been so successful, but the majority of programs that we've done just by having the iterations and having um, the team in place to, to, to go through that data and see how, and, and, and also involving particularly particular patient care, how you know patients are, are responding to that and being a part of that, that input to help us determine what are going to be um, Uh, the type of delivery mechanism that's going to be accepted by them to where we can take that and and, and measure it, but then show how that that uh, component of what what input they've been able to give us is is also helping um, create results, so uh, we have, you know, through electronic health records, we've been able to track a lot of the the data points also through, you know, various uh, lab results that we've been able to do, but then also, the biggest thing is, is that we've been able to show to uh, CMS and for Medicare Services we've been able to show bottom line that we're, we're saving lots of money for them. So that's the biggest metric that 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 uh, you know everybody pays attention to. So when you have um, uh, reduction in hospital admissions, uh, ER visits, uh, which are you know if, if a patient, if we can keep a patient from going to a hospital emergency room that's on average about uh, $9,000. If we can stop them from, I mean, you know, if they obviously need care, they're going to, but a lot of times it's like, you know, I've got a headache, I'm gonna go to the emergency room. And that's a generalization, but a lot of times some of those, that thought process that way, but we start empowering them to be like, you know, how, what am I doing that, that could help prevent this, but then also be a part of, you know, being a better steward of, of what's going on. Um, the, other, the other part of it is, is when you start um, allowing them to have communication, and, and, and they build that trust in you, then they pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm not feeling well today. I think this is going on or that's going on. So they're, they're communicating with you, and they're telling you more about themselves, and they're learning more about themselves. So in, in return, what happens is is they, they understand that um, um, there are things that they could be doing to really uh, impact their disease state. So that's, that's, and like I said, we have very good uh, data, we very, have very good shared cost savings that we've been able to exhibit through that as well. Do
2: we have any more questions? Uh, this will be the last one and then wrap up so the Darren Um, <laughs>
1: I, think, I think it's inspiring to hear about what you're doing on a microcosmic level. And I also hear the, the, the desire to extrapolate into, you know, fixing the world, I guess is what would be a way of thinking of it. How much or how, how good or how bad, how much will it have to change our basic system of what I'll call capitalism? Is that helping or is that hindering us as humans, as a human group on Earth, to advance our social welfare? How much will it have to change or how much is it a good lever?
3: I think, I, well, it's a fundamental question. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll take a shot at it, which is, um, and I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you, so I, I don't think it has to change very much, is my opinion. Um, and the way that I got there is trying to change it. Um, because I, I basically spent the first part of my career passing laws to protect low income people from predatory loans. And I realized that um, although we we passed lots of laws and save low income people um, uh, billions of dollars in predatory fees, that I saw the leaders of companies act in ways that I was really you know not not excited about, which is why I went to business school to study how people build companies to build companies differently. Um, but what I realized is it 's not only about uh policy because uh companies are of course incredibly influential in creating policy and it's not only about kind of the behaviors but it's about the hearts and minds of people too and i think that if you can if you can work with leaders to change their uh their their philosophy within a system and then you can um, put that in place in different corporate structures uh, then you can also create a lot of change. And I'll try to be more specific. Um, so at Ben and Jerry's we have a, a 92 uh, uh, legally binding provisions that enable us to do some very unique things as a board in order to steward the sur- social mission of the company. And those, the idea and the intention is to steward the social mission of the company. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, Regulating principles within that structure that create the possibility of doing that um, not necessarily outside regulatory force outside of the company so I believe uh, part of impact investing is uh, a belief that you can create and demonstrate that companies can be built in ways that um, honor the national or the natural resources in the world that honor the communities that they're doing business within um, that create uh, ways to reduce bias and structural uh, racism and gender, race within, within gender um, uh, biases within the structures and that we could model out and demonstrate a way for um, the future of work to happen in a more equitable and line way. So that's my, my really quick uh, kind of uh, you know thought about a reaction.
2: And, and what's interesting in that is Ben and Jerry's is bought by Unilever, and then yeah. they're starting to use that as a north star, right, for some of their practices. Mm-hmm. The way that Ben and Jerry's operates. So this behemoth is, it, I mean, that's right.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. So you have this behemoth company now taking on best practices from Ben and Jerry's because of these provisions that have been put in place. Mm-hmm.
1: And that will become at some point a prevailing
3: uh, uh, culture. Well. For us optimists, um, it's an answer. It's an answer. So, I guess you know. This is okay, the. I would. I would problem say. Problem I would say. Whatever. That's. That's why I do what I do, yeah. is that I'm building, along with a lot of my colleagues, a sector that's exponentially growing, to demonstrate how things could be, if we chose. To not only you know, uh, push the rules that we have all the way to the limit, but create our own set of rules that you know honor these other parts of the uh, the planet and people, and uh, yeah, and help to solve inequities and sort of build build pathways out of po- poverty for communities. I mean, it's a. I think eventually we want to be on a planet. Uh, we we invested in in space SpaceX recently, um, so you know we don't. I don't want to have to get on a rocket ship to go to another planet. Uh, you know, and in my you know we think in seven generations within native communities. And how do you, you know, I don't I don't think people um, if we don't have demonstrations of other possible ways of. Um, creating a, a capitalistic but aligned strategy on creating a place where we can all live together in ways that have peace and are beyond famine and, and solving really, really difficult problems in the world, then um, the, the we don't really have a, a whole bunch of other options. So demonstrating this is my way of answering uh, your question.
2: A is for activist. <laughs> <laughs> thanks guys, thanks for everyone.
0: Thanks for joining our conversation. For additional events, tools, and articles, subscribe at thrive.freerange.com.